Real conversation, real connection. It's Real Life with John Cowan on Newstalk ZB. G'day, welcome to Real Life. I'm John Cowan, and over the next half hour, I'm looking forward to getting to know Barbara Drever a bit better. G'day, Barbara. G'day, how are you? I'm I'm good, and congratulations on the awards that you won recently, the uh, Voyager Awards that you won for your stories covering the Pacific. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was a year of big news stories of the mosque shooting and things, and yet your stories on Samoa uh top top yeah. the list that must have been gratifying it was um but it's kind of bittersweet john because what you know it was such a, like a lot of these um big events they're so tragic and for me it was one of the hardest stories that i've ever had to cover in, in 30 years of journalism and it because it was children dying and we saw so much grief and death and and it was preventable and because it was children and babies you really it really got to me these stories and so it's bittersweet in that while I'm absolutely thrilled that the immensity of the story and the significance that it had on Samoa as a nation is recognized through my award it is really um, it's kind of sad for me as well, but yeah, it, it was a real honour to, to take out the two awards. I was very uh, pleased to see that in your acknowledgement when you received the award, you also acknowledged a very good friend of mine, cameraman Raymond Moore, and yes. uh, I know he was profoundly touched and moved too by going into a situation like that. Yes, look, you know, it, it's interesting because in television, we're not a one-man band. And we are, in terms of television, no pictures, no story. And for me, having someone as solid as Raymond Moore, I've, I've worked with him for as long as I've been at Television New Zealand. I think one of my first stories was with, was with Raymond, and I love travelling overseas with him because he's steady as, he's compassionate, um, and he, he gets the story. Like he un, He's not just shooting pictures. He understands what we're trying to do, and it's just so important. And for me, having him as a rock-steady person there with me was absolutely super crucial. We had to give each other a lot of support during that time because... Oh, I tell you, some of those stories, you know, dreadful, and it was really, it was, it was heart wrenching at times, and especially being at a funeral and people are howling and screaming and they're cradling the bodies of their two babies. I mean, you know, as as an as a reporter, you get on with the job, but you know, it had a profound effect on me. And having Raymond there, and and I just, yeah, it, to this day, I. And still impacted by it. it. It was a really dreadful time. I recall that uh, you covered a Samoan baby smuggling operation quite a few years ago, but yes. that must that must have touched you as well. The, you know, just this idea of well, I suppose anything to do with babies in the middle of a tragedy yeah. it, it must really rip your heart. Um, I think the thing with the, the Samoan smuggling <coughs> issue was that it was so unfair and things were happening that the parents did not know were happening. And it was a real cultural difference because adoption in Samoa 
doesn't mean the same as adoption in the Western world. In the Western world, when you adopt someone, they become your child and you're responsible for them, etc. But in Samoa, you can adopt a child, but they still belong to their family. And it's a bit like the Maori Whangai system. Mm. And I um, a lot to, have been sold to these Samoan parents as you... Just you can adopt your children, but they're going to come back to you when they're 18, and they'll be well educated, and they'll be able to look after you. and 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 these are very poor families that we're talking about, uneducated families who just wanted the best for their kids. And so these children would be taken away from them and put into what was called the nanny house, and kept in this nanny house uh, for three months, so that they became. Um, by law, orphans, and then they were carted out to goodness knows where. And this really upset us because we were in this house, we got access to this house. And I was looking at all these kids and thinking, I, you know, I was praying that they would go to good families because you just, you just didn't know. I mean, one baby was handed over at a McDonald's in Auckland to their family. I mean, it was dreadful. So to have a conclude, to expose that and to have the FBI investigating and, and a con- successful conclusion to that was really satisfying, incredibly satisfying to me. In that case, the people ended up in jail. But unfortunately, a lot of the people that you have to sometimes expose their operations, uh, they go on to keep on getting elected and, uh, over and over again. I mean, the Pacific <laughs> is, <laughs> is probably a dangerous place for a journalist because journalistic freedom is not respected very much in the Pacific, is it? No, I often say that um, when uh, Fiji went through its coup and imposed media restrictions and censorship, there were many Pacific leaders around the region who thought this was a wonderful idea and wished that they could do the same too. And it's it's actually no exaggeration. Um, the Pacific media have an incredibly tough job because one, they're told it's you're being culturally offensive. That's trotted out quite a lot um, when you expose something you're not meant to, or looking into something you're not meant to, or they don't want you to. And the other thing that happens is they 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 bully as well. And so there's quite a lot of issues around the Pacific around media freedom. And I have the utmost respect for many of my Pacifica colleagues who are doing a wonderful job in extremely hard circumstances. You sometimes say you have an unfair advantage when you're covering this patch, this huge (laughs) area of the Pacific, in that... uh, you come from uh, Kiribati yourself, and you're, yes. you're brought up there. And your you, and your mum has got uh, family spread out all over the Pacific. <laughs> That's a great advantage. <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I worked with um, along the way a, a wonderful journalist called Sean Dorney. He was with the ABC in Australia, and he was a Pacific correspondent. And the running joke was wherever we went, I'd say. Oh, I'm related to that person. And he'd go, of course you are. And um, that that is kind of the nature. I mean, my mother had many brothers and sisters. I think there was like 12 of them all up. And they scattered across the Pacific to Fiji and um, Solomon Islands and uh, Nauru at one point. And they have family pretty much in a lot of the Pacific countries and of course my cousins, I've many cousins, I've completely lost count how many I've got um, and they're all scattered around the Pacific as well so it is wonderful in that it gives me an insight um, 
into what's going on on the ground, but also the cultural. Um, you, you need to appreciate what's going on culturally and um, politically as well. And so that does give me a good grounding and also context. Uh, and when, when I was in the Solomon Islands, for example, and there was the terrible um, war, civil war between the Guadalcanal um, force and the Malaitan Eagle force, and many people died. And I remember going there, and my, my cousin had some good contacts on one side who so made sure that they wouldn't hurt me. And then another cousin that was there knew some good contacts on the other side and made sure that people wouldn't hurt me. So that was one case where two cousins on completely different camps were able to um, assist in my safety. That, that sounds great, but the idea that you're going into a war zone, uh, that that's just so scary. The fact that you can go out to <clears throat> Auckland Airport, get on a plane, and, a couple, and just within a couple of hours, you're in a place where you have governments that are very, very oh, scary and warfare and violence. Uh, doesn't this rattle you? Um. Sometimes that's a good question because some. I mean, uh, I'm always cautious about where I'm going, and having contacts on the ground and friends and family on the ground as a backup uh, does help. But most of the time, I'm thinking about the best way of telling the story that's going to get information out to the public, and also. Yeah, and and also in, in terrible circumstances, say like cyclones as well, um, that that kind of thing. But I have to say that the Pacific's fairly stable at the moment. Um, there are some issues with media freedom and some places that I prefer not to go. But there, there, it's it's not like in around two thousand and six, there were so many things happening in the Pacific. I was going from one violent crisis to another, and that. Yeah, at that time, I was just more, when you're going for a job, you're thinking about doing the best job you can, um, and also having a cameraman with you, it's just the two of us usually, uh, we, we keep, you know, we keep each other safe, we make sure we've got each other's backs, and we've done things like the hostile environment course, which has helped us um, with tactics, and also just what, what to watch out for. Uh, TVNZ puts us through that course, and and it's been a wonderful, literally a lifesaver at times. Actually, um, one thing I never got to cover as a story, but my cameraman and I were had been at this uh, in Tahiti reporting, and uh, we'd heard these screams, and it was a Japanese woman and her husband was well out at sea. Um, drowning, and so the the she came running up, and the, the two guys who were near the pool, uh, local Tahitians who worked for the hotel, ran out and swam out a long way to get him and brought him to shore. And so I started working on his chest, and my cameraman um, Mike Fitzgerald came running up, and I said to him, "You do the chest. You're, you've got stronger hands, and I'll do the mouth." So we gave him CPR for about fifteen minutes. It was. Uh, it was a long time, and he'd been without air out at sea for a very long time as well. 
and we worked and worked on him. And in the meantime, his wife was having this hysterical meltdown, and I was yelling at another guy to go and wrap her up. I could see she was near collapse, and it was really desperate. And then we suddenly felt his heart go boom, and he came back, but he was unconscious. And he was in a coma. He was flown back to, this was on Bora Bora, and he was flown back to Tahiti, and he was there in, in a coma for about 10 days. And then he, I got a call, and they said, are you sitting down? He's coming out. He's writing his wife's name on her hand. So I flew over there with my son, actually, and we met up again. And, of course, he didn't remember me, but his wife came running towards me, and she gave me this massive hug. It was so lovely, and it was just so nice to see him alive. And he went back to Japan, and they sent me and Fitzy an email saying, thank you, and they put in a photo. He was back to normal, and the doctors all said, what a miracle! And they they he sent, they sent a photo of them with fireworks going off in the background and holding a tiger bear in their hands, and it was just lovely. It must be great to win journalism awards, but to have something like that happen, that must be truly fantastic. Yeah, that's real life, right? That's real life. If you've just tuned in, my guest tonight is Barbara Drever, TVNZ's Pacific correspondent. And after the break, I'll be talking more about growing up in Kiribati and her career over 30 years in journalism. This is Real Life. I'm John Cowan. You're listening to Newstalk ZB. Back with you in just a minute. Intelligent interviews with interesting people. It's Real Life on Newstalk ZB. Oh, Welcome back to Real Life. I'm John Cowan. My guest tonight is Barbara Drever, TVNZ's Pacific correspondent. She's chosen some very Pacific music for us. What are we listening to there? Well, it's called Hawaii 78, and it's by a wonderful man called Israel Kamakawi. I've got to make sure I say this correctly. My Hawaiian is not up to par, but Kamakawi Wa'ole, or otherwise known as Iz. He's sadly deceased. He died in about 97, but he... It was he had this beautiful, pure voice, and he was singing about indigenous rights, and well before um, it was popular to do so. Now, his beautiful voice, I know some of his music, and uh, mm. uh, when he died, apparently the whole of Hawaii just sort of shut down in grief. It was uh, uh, he was very, very popular. And uh, That's right. now you grew up, well, you were born in Ocean Island. Uh, a strange place. I believe in the, the, <laughs> the local name is Banaba, which means uh, hollow land, which is strangely appropriate considering how hollowed out it's been. Yes, look, it is an unusual place. In fact, I, I have never met anyone else who's been born in Barnaba, um, but I'm sure they're around somewhere, but the, it is an unusual place. My father was a VSA. He was the first volunteer service abroad for New Zealand to go and work in Kiribati, or the Gilbert and Alice Islands, as it was known at that time. And he met my mother there. It was literally love at first sight. And he was working there for a little while, and then he, he got posted to Barnaba. Um, as a to work with some of the locals there, and um, that's where I was born. Now it's a it's a, a phosphate island, and it was you know covered in 
very valuable phosphate, and so it's just been basically mined to bits, hasn't it? It's a it's a wrecked place. Yes, absolutely. And, and how old were you when you left there? I was only one when I left there, and uh, interesting what you're saying. Absolutely, it is a um, was phosphate mined, and it was it was. It was pretty dire at that time, and my father would write to the New Zealand Herald. I, am, I remember um, he, he, him telling me and showing me the articles he used to write to the Herald because he was so angry at the way that the locals were being treated by the mining companies, which of course were Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Um, I left when I was one, but we went back to Tarawa, my, my mother's, um, when he met my mother, and we lived there until I was about 11 years old and it really was the most amazing childhood where I feel that it's given me the basis of being multicultural because all my friends were it was British owned at that time so I had British friends I had friends whose parents had escaped the Idi Amin regime and had gone back to England, didn't like it there, and had been sent off to Tarawa to, to work. I had all sorts of friends from the UK, the US, um, and all my Kiribati friends and my cousins. And so it really was a magnificent childhood, and it gave me a deep appreciation for the different our differences. So you have straddled all these different cultures and you've lived in New Zealand. I think you came here for the rest of your education, didn't you? So where do you feel is home? Where's home for you? Well, New Zealand is my home, but I also, and sorry to throw another country in the mix, but uh, the Cook Islands I consider home too because I lived there for, I'm part, there's a, a, a smattering of Cook Islands in me, and I lived there for many years and co-owned a newspaper in there in the 90s. And so for me, Rarotonga, a lot of my friends are still there, and every time I land there, I do feel like I'm coming home. And so, yes, the Cooks is, is where a big part of my heart is, but New Zealand is, is the other, uh, just because my family's here and... Uh, well, I love New Zealand. You know, what's not to love, especially <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> Considering uh, the image that pops into our mind when we think of the Pacific, beautiful beaches, lovely, warm, sunny climate, friendly people, there is such a lot of drama going on in various places, <laughs> like the methamphetamine crisis and the uh, the tragic slaying of Ned Cook, uh, the, the Salvation yeah. Army officer that was working to to halt methamphetamine in uh, uh, up there at, in Tonga. So there's lots and lots of stuff going on. Yes, there is. And there, we still have the beautiful islands and it's still there, but there are big issues and it's an absolute crime not to report on them hmm. because I think Pacifica deserves better. And quite often I get, uh, when, when I did the methamphetamine stories, for example, um, it was mostly New Zealand Tongans who came up and said, oh, it's not true, this is the beautiful kingdom. It's, that's, there's only very small problems there, it's, it's not an issue. And yet I'm having friends crying on my shoulder in Tonga about their children or their, you know, or their relatives who are hooked on meth. And that's how I came across the story, actually, was through friends and then investigated further for a good year and exposed it and talked to drug dealers themselves and, and one of the syndicate, main syndicates 
Um, and it was dangerous times. It still is dangerous times. The death of Ned Cook shows that. Whether it is drug-related, um, he did tell me when we were talking outside that he said, oh, you know, they all know they didn't like him. The drug dealers didn't like him because he was helping people trying to get off drugs. And he said to me, I, I really fear for my life. And I think that, you know, they know where I live, they know where I walk. And and that's, he died on a walk near mm. his home. And the police are still investigating and we're yet to find out what happened. But yes, there is so much happening in the region. And I, I don't regret for a second that I expose these issues, which are seen as negative, um, because it's important for the people. If you don't expose things and things get buried, things don't change. And what are we? As journalists, we have to enact change. I admire your courage because that type of courage has landed you in trouble. I mean, uh, in Fiji, uh, you were were in in jail for uh, uh, and blacklisted. That must have been very, very scary. Yeah. Um, I, because it was modus operandi, um, Vorengi Bainimarama at the time was the commander of the military, and he was doing. He had the handbook for how to be a military dictator. And one of the, one of the first things you do is get rid of the journalists, the pest journalists who might actually say what's going on. So I got put into a detention centre for the night, which was not a hotel, which some of the reporters found themselves in. It was actually a, a dreadful, <laughs> dreadful place with metal doors outside. Um, and and, and I'd, it was just an incredibly scary night because I'd had a tip off that um, I was going to be taken to a military camp um, and there was torture going on at that time, um, and especially for journalists. And so it was something that I was particularly worried. I had a very sleepless night there, but I was taken back to the plane the next day and um, thrown out um, and blacklisted for a long time. And, it, it, yeah, it's just part of the course when it comes to these sort of military takeovers. Well, Barbara, I admire that your courage to be able to go back to these places, and you have been back to Fiji since. It must have been nice to come back to such a lovely place, but to know that uh, you know that there are people in charge that can do things like that must be very scary. So I admire your courage very much. And uh, Thank you. So, so, what do you do to de-stress? What what does Barbara <laughs> Drever do to relax? I mean, people think, oh, you get to go to the Pacific all the time. You must just spend a lot of time just strolling along sun- sunny beaches. <laughs> but, but uh, I bet it's not like that much at all. <laughs> I, I I think I can in the eighteen years I've been at TVNZ, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been for. A- on those beautiful beaches whilst they're on a job um, it just really doesn't happen and it's so stressful during those times when you are reporting and uh, delivering every night um, that yeah sometimes I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack some nights uh, I'm just very lucky to have a wonderful team at TVNZ um, who do help me <laughs> but um, the the to de-stress well um, of course here in, in back when I come home it's, it's sad Family um, that helps me. I it's wonderful, and um, also you know I read a lot. I watch a lot of absolute trash TV. Um, <laughs> I don't want anything too serious. <laughs> um, I do travel a lot. I love music, and um, yeah. So I, I have a fairly busy life, 
and one that I treasure immensely. One thing that I've learned over the years is that you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. So you've got to absolutely live your best day like it's your last. And I do that, try and do that every day. And that's something that my parents um, have instilled in me as well. They've taught me, I have great joy about life, even in the really, really tough times. And that's really helped me through some really tough times. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for taking time to share with us. Keep on covering the news. Try to avoid being the news as you're uh, in amongst <laughs> cyclones and tsunamis and, and contagions and all sorts of things. Please stay safe and keep on bringing us these wonderfully insightful stories from the Pacific. Barbara, we're going to go out on another piece of music you've chosen. What, what's this that we're going to listen to? Oh, it's not a very well-known song, but it's a song called Mai Rara Tonga, and it's sung by Ingrid Goslin. And it's basically what strikes a chord with me. It's for people, it strikes a chord with anyone who loves Rara Tonga and lives overseas. And it talks about your home. This is Real Life. I'm John Cowan. Been speaking to Barbara Drever, and I'm looking forward to being back again with you next Sunday night. Yeah.